Hey, what's up all? This is Sam Bolton, and this is The Sam Bolton Show. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, I wanted to start this show because I've had some experience with starting a few podcasts and shows in the past, and it's something I've been interested in for a long time. You know, I'm a huge fan of talking online and listening to other people talk online, and, you know, I want to get in that game. I want to get back in that game. Uh, this show is going to be about everything. Uh, you know, I have a ton of interests. I love conspiracy theories and politics, history and theology, religion, uh, you know, and really no subject is off the table. You know, I can wax on music and movies, philosophy, all that stuff. So I'm going to be talking about really whatever I want to talk about. Uh, probably do a lot of news commentary. You know, I'm a pretty pretty good interviewer. I've interviewed some interesting characters, and I'll probably upload some old interviews just to kind of pad out my catalog as we get the show started here. But yeah, I'm going to be commenting on current events. I'm going to be talking about all the hottest conspiracy theories, and I'm going to, whenever I feel like it, get into history, religion, and theology, and uh, maybe some movies, that sort of thing. And I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, I will be doing it from my own personal perspective, obviously, which I would describe as, I would say I mostly during my life have leaned right-wing populist, um, waffling back and forth here and there throughout my years. I, when I first registered to vote, I actually registered as a member of the Green Party, which would be considered a far-left progressive political party in the United States. <laughs> I was mostly convinced by uh, Carl Sagan and Michael Moore when he came out with that book, Stupid White Men, in when I was in high school. So <laughs> if you think the left just got started uh, demonizing white men in uh, 2015, well, uh, let me take you back to the uh, halcyon days of 2002. <laughs> Stupid White Men was topping the charts at Barnes & Noble. Uh, also, Carl Sagan uh, got me into new atheism before new, the new atheism popped off, so I read his books. And uh, became one of those uh, annoying fedoras at that time as well. So I've definitely changed in my perspective over the years. But I started off as a lefty atheist. And then I went on to become, uh, you know, kind of a Christian conservative. Somebody who would vote for John McCain, uh, as I did. And then after that, I uh, became kind of a libertarian and eventually an anarcho-capitalist for a while. Uh, voting for Gary Johnson in 26, or 2012. And then finally, uh, my first, I, I, the first president I voted for was John Kerry in 2004. So from 2004 all the way to 2012, every single candidate I voted for did not win. Uh, but 2016 was the first year where I voted for a candidate who won the presidency. And that candidate was, uh, you guessed it, Donald John Trump, time traveler extraordinaire, uh, plus ultra. Am I right? So, uh, no, I am not a... Um, you know, a, a chud-sucking hillbilly racist, and uh, I did not vote for Trump because he was going to build the wall, but I did vote for Trump for the same reason that a lot of people did, because he seemed to be the greatest chance that we had as a country to at least lob a hand grenade into the den of filth and corruption in Washington, D.C., and cause some kind of chaos, at least, because, I mean, the the obvious corruption had become so entrenched at that point that people just felt so desperate, and they didn't know what else to do. And then this guy came along who just started saying all the right things to rile up all the right people, and, you know, we, we thought, what the hell? Give it a shot. It can't be worse than what we got. Uh, what, are we going to go with another Clinton after we just had the second Bush? 
two of the worst uh, political crime families in American history. So that was where I was coming from. Uh, I've been in the uh, extreme political cynicism game since I was a child. I was raised up in it by my father, who was a 90s conspiracy theorist. So, you know, black helicopters, UN taking everything over, uh, Bo Greitz militia up in... Anyway, I was raised by that guy. He actually, uh, really kind of as a lark, I think, but also he was quasi-serious. I had to do a school project in, I think it was fifth grade, and we had to write about somebody that we admired and, I think, dress up as him and then write about why he was great. And my dad basically made me or strongly encouraged me to write the paper about uh, militia leader Bo Greitz. So that's what I did. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure my teacher was not happy. She was a proto-Karen um, Anyway, I, much love to her. I, you know, I don't hate Karens, but it's a useful term. It, it communicates a lot of uh, a lot of ideas to people's minds these days with two syllables. You know, I'm all about efficiency when it comes to language. As I rant on and on and on, I'm gonna drink a water here. Uh, so, this is just an introduction. Uh, I'm trying to introduce myself to people who don't know me, and uh, I guess. Uh, let you know that this show is going to be a lot of fun. You should tune in every episode. And also that I will be playing one of the earliest interviews I did about Bitcoin back in 2013 with my friend Luke Stokes uh, that I knew in Nashville. He told me to buy Bitcoin when it was like, you know, 50 bucks a coin <laughs> or something. And uh, I didn't, uh, unfortunately. But, <clears throat> you know, what are you going to do? What are you? Gonna, we can't all be... Biff from Back to the Future with our our book of uh, of scores at the dog tracks, you know. Oh, but if we could, what a world that would be. Probably a hellhole. <laughs> uh, so back to me, since this is the Sam Bolton show. Um, so where did I come from politically? So I voted for Donald John Trump in 2016. Great. Okay, so since that time, I've been revisiting... Uh, because really Donald Trump uh, took a crap. He didn't really do anything uh, effective against the power elite, and it turns out was heavily entrenched with them after all, which anybody probably could have figured out by doing a little research, uh, even before the election, but that's not the mind space people were in at that time. But it was easy to figure out afterwards that he was all flash and no, uh, you know, stake. All sizzle and no stake, right? Uh so after that, I started taking another look at, I guess, leftist politics and giving their ideas another go, um, you know, because Donald Trump, he, he wasn't really a traditional Republican. As you know, he was really kind of a third party candidate that infiltrated the Republican Party and took over in a lot of ways. And he wasn't strict on conservative ideas. And he, you know, he could be liberal on some social ideas. And he wasn't all about, you know, libertarian economics all day. So there was some room there for people in the Republican side of things to consider ideas beyond, you know, uh, Austrian economics and strict evangelical conservatism. So uh, 
I don't know, during that time period, during that milieu, I think a lot of people who were on the right and even who were libertarians started thinking about other ideas that they hadn't considered before or had considered in a long time and realized that they might actually share a lot in common with people on the left in terms of economic policy and maybe even some social policies or ideas about society. Uh, so I was one of those guys, you know, I, I decided to take another look and I found a lot of interesting commentators online that were representing the ideas of the, the modern American left. Uh, Jimmy Dore, I think is really fascinating and I think he's a real hero in a lot of ways. Uh, and, uh, some people of his ilk, I guess. So I'm one of those famous, uh, Jimmy Dore, right wing Jimmy Dore listeners, <laughs> Trump voting Jimmy Dore listeners. Uh, I'm one of them. So what I, what I learned from that Jimmy Dore type left, I also listened to a lot of Chapo Trap House, and uh, who I've since come to not really enjoy that much, um, and uh, people sort of people in that arena. I guess they call it the dirtbag left. Uh, I I was convinced by a lot of their ideas, and I realized that um, the American economy is functioning on modern monetary theory and not Austrian economics even though they say the opposite when they talk about the economy. And I realized that <clears throat> spending money on social welfare programs is not the end of the world, and you, you're not going to have your fiscal responsibility and your, uh, you know, your Austrian utopia in terms of economics when you're spending trillions of dollars on war and Wall Street. Whenever There's always enough money for bombs and bailing out banks, but there's never enough money to fund the social welfare programs, right? So my thinking and my feeling became, well, if you're running up the credit card anyway, you might as well, you know, charge a little bit for the people to, you know, have pay for grandma's cancer bills and fix the bridge that's about to drop on the school bus in the morning, right? Uh, if you're rebuilding Iraq and Afghanistan's infrastructure, you might as well throw a couple bones to Flint, Michigan, right? Or the entire country. So I came to realize that <clears throat> America was not the fiscally responsible place, and we never would be, that the libertarians want it to be. And, uh, you know, uh, if they're if they're charging up the credit card, you might as well throw some to the people. Uh, I repeat myself. <coughs> Pardon me. I've had some uh, <clears throat> some congestion in my lungs. I hope it's not the Rona. So <clears throat> anyway, that's where I'm coming from right now. I guess I, I just like to rant about these things. I find them interesting and share the ideas I have. Uh, I, I don't really like ideology. I like ideas. I don't like ideology. I think ideology is very limiting. Ideas are more interesting. And you just have to have enough confidence in your own ability to uh, process the merits of an idea without being moored to the strictures of an ideology. So if you can trust yourself to do that, then I find that uh, ideology is not... Maybe it's something you need when you're first starting out as like a political adult. You need an ideology to kind of give you boundaries. Uh, but I would say it's very constricting, and it's a way to control us. So if we can just all agree <clears throat> that there's a ruling elite over the whole planet right now, and they're exploiting the masses for wealth and gain and power and who knows what else to, to harvest souls for the reptilian overlords and you know whatever your pet theory is, this uh, ruling elite is sitting over us and exploiting us and sucking our energy and, and life force and financial well-being off like a, like a vampire mosquito from outer space. If we can all agree on that and we can agree that we should band together as a human species and try to make life better for ourselves and reduce the amount of oppression we have from that ruling class on top of us, 
then uh, whatever I, uh, label you want to put on that, I guess it, it doesn't really matter. If we can just agree on those things and ignore the stuff that hasn't directly served that goal for a while to make the world a better place, then uh, you know I'm all for it. I'm gung-ho. I mean, we have to do something. We can't just sit here and, and let them abuse us over and over again for centuries, right? we got to band together as a people and uh, resist these, these, these horrible demonic overlords. Please, if you agree with me, continuing to listen to the show will be very good for your mental, spiritual, and emotional health. That's what I think. I'm going to get a drink of water, please. So, I think what I'm going to do is maybe <clears throat> two or three nights a week, eventually I'll go to I'll do a live stream. And uh, right now, I don't really have the internet connection to do that, however. And maybe just kind of go through my Twitter feed, Facebook feed, look at the news, and comment on what I'm seeing. Um, <clears throat> of course, they had the Kyle Rittenhouse trial going on. A uh, clear case of self-defense, I think, to most people who look at the video. I mean, admittedly, I'm biased. You know, I, I was definitely of the opinion that those uh, people burning down and rioting in American cities last year were agent provocateurs of globalist NGOs and um, is largely a astroturfed uh, social unrest to probably on behalf of the intelligence services in, in the U.S., to destabilize and discredit the Trump presidency, and for other reasons, to demoralize the American population, you know, and that it was only, I was, I'm surprised that more people didn't uh, go out into the public and attempt to protect their communities with firearms, uh, but the ones that did, it was completely understandable to me, and, you know, I 100% believe, Kyle, that he was there primarily to provide medical support to the community and to help keep his uh, community from being burned down by these, you know, drugged out, uh, I don't really want to call them communists, they're just anarcho thugs, you know, they have no regard for order or peace or goodness, you know, they're just there to break shit, they're like the physical embodiment of uh, that Limbiscuit song, Break Stuff, that, you know, turned uh, Woodstock 99 into the worst tragedy since the Civil War. <laughs> In the same way that January 6th is the worst attack on America since September 11th. <laughs> Can you believe the audacity of these people? Oh my gosh. So, um, yeah, Kyle Rittenhouse, man. You know, I hope he gets off 100%. I, I saw a, uh, a tweet somebody said, <laughs> you know, if, <clears throat> if Kyle gets acquitted on all these charges... Then we're going to take to the streets and uh, exact our riot mob justice on Kenosha once again, and the city deserves it. That was the spirit of what this tweet said. I don't remember the exact quote verbatim. And then the person responded, uh, well, that's cool. We'll just send Kyle out again. (laughs) Ah, That's so funny. So, I mean, but what do you expect people to do, really? You're uh, (laughs) burning down their city. (laughs) They're not going to... Read all the same books you read and, and come to agree with you on all your uh, niche political nuance ideas. Okay, so that doesn't make them your uh, mortal enemy. You don't have to destroy their city. Um, all they see is a, a crazy dwarven thug trying to light a church on fire. Uh, they have zero care for his motive or what ideology he subscribes to while he's doing it. 
<laughs> okay, if you do that in most towns, somebody is going to get upset, and uh, probably a small percentage of those somebodies are going to be armed. Okay, that's just common sense, right? And how can you blame people for wanting to fight back against that kind of insane lunacy? You can't have insane people running amok in your cities, causing violence and burning things down. I mean, that should go without saying. But in uh, modern America, I guess, I guess it doesn't. You know, I guess there's a sizable percentage of people who think that that sort of thing is acceptable. You know, kind of, kind of insane, kind of insane. So. Anyway, I don't know. What do you guys think about Bitcoin? Do you think that <clears throat> it is a uh, some kind of op to bring in that global currency uh, that you've been hearing so much about for years and years? Is it the mark of the beast? That's what I want to ask. Uh, I'm sort of joking, but in all seriousness, it really could be some sort of uh, agenda on behalf of well-funded elites to move us off of national paper currencies and into something more global and maybe even, uh, you know, interplanetary or uh, uh, from the Earth to a space station or something. Perhaps they they wanted a a currency that could be used for the next level of civilization. If we're about to move into level one, if you want to use the model that Michio Kaku popularized, maybe they're getting us ready for that. They're preparing us to move into that level and cryptocurrency is a part of it. You know, they can't have us paying for things in paper money if we're going to be uh, doing economics and transactions from the Earth and a space station or a mining uh, business on an asteroid or on the moon or something, right? That would be insane. You need something more efficient, something more digital and futuristic, something that is on an open ledger that can't be counterfeited, uh, something that can be broadcast through the vacuum of space. And uh, perhaps cryptocurrency is the answer to that. You know, maybe this is a part of the Great Reset. You know, maybe this is one of the key foundational building blocks of it. Um, you know, and, and even if it is, you know, perhaps that's a good thing. I'm kind of, if that is where we're headed as a species, I'm interested to see what it's going to look like. However, I'm dubious. I, I don't know if we can actually get there. You know, I, I feel like a lot of the promises they make about space technology and Star Trek, a Star Trek future are, you know, a lot of, Carnival barking, smoke and mirrors, you know, where's the beef? Where is the beef, you know? Alan Shepard was the first American in space. You want to know how high Alan Shepard flew in 1960-whatever? Was it 62? The first American in space. He flew uh, in 1961. I, I looked this up the other day. It was fascinating, okay? In 1961, he took a spacecraft. Uh, this is all alleged. And flew to the, uh, you know, upper atmosphere, stratosphere of the planet Earth, okay? And he flew... Man, I was able to find this the other day. I'm going to have to edit this out. <laughs> okay. Uh, I space spaceflight. <clears throat> okay. Uh, I was I, I posted this on the Secret Sun Facebook group. Okay, it says <clears throat> this is on API Images blog, API Images blog. <laughs> okay, <laughs> tell me you've been on the internet too long without saying you've been on the internet too long. Um, 
According to AP, the Associated Press, Alan Shepard flew to the height of 116 miles into the atmosphere, and the flight lasted 15 minutes. So it wasn't a full orbital flight. It was a brief suborbital flight, okay? But this was 1961. This was over 60 years ago, and it was the first American flight into space, allegedly, okay? So the Blue Origin rocket that just took off with Jeff Bezos... Uh, it, it flew about half as high as that. Uh-huh. So this is the a monumental achievement in 1961. First American in space. And uh, the Blue Origin rocket in 2021, which is supposed to be the next step toward uh, our Star Trek future, um, flew to about half that height, according to CNBC. Uh, <laughs> they flew to a height of 80 kilometers or 262,000 feet so let's uh, convert kilometers to miles real quick to see exactly because I'm interested so 80 kilometers is that right did they say 80 kilometers yeah 80 kilometers this was back in September no July 9th okay uh, 80 kilometers is only it's only 49.7 miles, right? So Alan Shepard flew to 116 miles into the atmosphere. And Jeff Bezos, Blue Origin, less than 50 miles. So a third of the height of Alan Shepard's flight. And it's 60 years later. The rocket technology we used to go into space and that they're still basically using uh, was invented by the Nazis, allegedly, right? During World War II. You know, the Saturn V rocket was just a modern, modified V2 rocket. We've been rocking with the same rocket technology since the 1930s as a species. The car is essentially the exact same machine it was when the Model T rolled off the assembly line. It really hasn't changed that much. They've upgraded the user interface, right, of our world. But the fundamental technology is basically stuck in, you know, the time of the Great Wars. It's almost like our culture, Western civilization, suffered an extreme traumatic event, or perhaps two extreme traumatic events back-to-back in uh, the 19-teens and the 1930s and 40s, respectively, that sort of got us stuck in the mindset of the 1930s and 40s. In a really profound way. It's like a mass cultural PTSD. But perhaps there's another explanation for it. Perhaps technology has been progressing at an understandable pace. And that technology has been kept largely secret from us. And it's used in applications that we're completely in the dark about. Uh, Richard Dolan talks about this. And Joseph P. Farrell... Another great mind who's written about this. Uh, The secret space program and the breakaway civilization. That all this Star Trek technology really, really does exist, but it's just being held by super secret space Nazis and secret in in Antarctica or on the moon or on a base in uh, Europa. Uh, You know, I'm dubious. I love, I love those stories. I think they're great stories. I think they would make excellent films or perhaps a series on Netflix. But, you know, I have a hard time really believing that that's true. (laughs) However, the problem is still there. Why are we still stuck in the 1930s and 40s 
fundamentally in terms of our technology in 2021 and perhaps we're even getting worse and my friend uh, Chris Knowles over at the Secret Sun blog postulates that we've tapped out with uh, the limitations that we have in our thinking ability as a species on our uh, technological ability on the resources that we can extract and utilize on this planet that we've tapped out. We're at peak technology, sort of like peak oil, and we are de-evolving. You know, uh, this is the the myth of progress that they've they recognized this fact a long time ago. The ruling class, and <clears throat> they decided that instead of just you know facing up to it and being real with us, I think Jimmy Carter tried to do that actually. Um, just kind of said, hey, look, Americans, uh, oil is a finite resource, and uh, you might just need to put on a sweater and not heat your homes as efficiently from now on. And uh, that's why he became the lame duck president and got kicked out of office, <laughs> because he spoke a little truth to the American people. Um, again, if I'm saying an idea, it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm 100% committed to believing this idea. I'm, I'm not saying that this is what I definitely think happened with Jimmy Carter. I'm just saying that this is a narrative that I've heard. And I would like to issue that caveat for everything I say on this show, by the way. <laughs> the views expressed by the host are not necessarily the views held to by the host. Got it? Okay. So... <clears throat> Chris, uh, another good thinker on this topic, the myth of progress, is John Michael Greer, who is actually a, a neo-Druid, but he's actually he's also a really uh, accomplished author and sort of philosophizer about this idea that um, progress, as it's sold to us, is a myth. And they, as soon as they realized that uh, we had reached peak technology, peak resource, and that things were going to start degrading, they had to um, dress everything up in a kind of razzle dazzle and they had to become carnival barkers uh thus you thus is born the movie star or celebrity president and politician they're there to keep the masses sated while the people who are in the know and have the wherewithal and the means to uh, extract as much wealth as possible from our civilization before everyone else realizes that the ship is sinking maybe that's why our technology is stuck and, in fact, getting worse. But our completely corrupted and bought-out corporate media, you know, they will make you feel like <laughs> the Blue Origin space flight in 2021 uh, was this huge milestone in human spaceflight history. Uh, you know, eventually, you have to learn how to sniff out bullshit. Am I right? If something smells like bullshit, you know, you should probably assume it is until proven otherwise, <laughs> especially when dealing with the corporate media and your children. <laughs> That's just a fact of life. So <clears throat> this is probably going to be my show. Mostly I'm just taking topics and ranting on them. I hope you don't mind. Stream of consciousness, free association podcasting, whilst engaging with current events, conspiracy theories, history, theology, philosophy, uh, movies, media. Hopefully I can do some interviews and have my brother on as well sometimes. And you know, I also like doing improv and joking around. You know, I'm I'm big on improv. I kinda part of me would you know, I'm I'm one of these guys that looks back on his life and says, 
I could have done so much. Uh, like I literally, it's like a mental illness. Okay, like <laughs> I'll watch a movie about something, or read a book about something, or read an article about something. Or, you know, and it'll be about a plumber or a guy who works on trains or an artist or whatever and i'll i'll say oh wow i think i could have done that job if i had and i'll start to think like man if only when i when i was 15 i I started reading books about being a train conductor (laughs) what if i if only i had checked out all the books about being a train conductor at the library then i could have become the best train conductor in the history of the world and then i'll start to actually feel guilty that i didn't do that and i'll do this with everything (laughs) Like, uh, being a filmmaker, being a professional cyclist, you know, being a doctor, being a film critic, you know, just like anything I see somebody else doing, I start having, um, jealousy for it. It, Like it really is insane, you know, because there's no way a a single person or single lifetime could do all of these things. Right. So why should I feel guilty that I didn't like master all these different skill sets? And it's just, it's insane. But, um. (sighs) <sighs> anyway, um, I have a lot of interests, I guess you could say, and uh, I've I've uh, become a little bit adept at intelligently discussing a lot of different topics enough to wax interestingly about them. Um, but I I honestly feel that if I had gotten started early enough, I could have been a professional improv or comedian or something. Um, I think I'm pretty funny, you know, and. Uh, my brother and I like to riff back and forth, and all of my brothers, actually. And we come up with some funny stuff, man, you know? So, you know, if you guys, I hope you guys think I'm funny, too, because, um, you know, I, I, one of my favorite things to do in the whole world is to make people laugh. And whenever I'm in a social situation, I love to just light up the room with a well-placed quip, you know? I don't like to tell canned jokes. I, I've never been a huge fan of those. I don't really memorize them. I just like to riff, you know, come up with something in the in the heat of the moment. I do like Norm MacDonald's Professor of Logic joke, however. Oh, man, rest in peace to a real one, you know what I'm saying? Norm was incredible. He's my boy. Got me through some hard times. My dad, ti- my dad died two years ago. <clears throat> it is so hard to lose a parent. Hmm. It's crazy how how that just like rips your soul open. It's like this huge gaping wound deeper than anything you've ever felt, you know? Whew, it's hard. Um, <clears throat> you know, and as I was grieving, um, the Lord placed three sisters in our home, and we adopted them. <laughs> uh, li- like literally the same time my dad died, I adopted three young girls with PTSD, you know? Well, I mean, it's the last two years have been insane for me, which is why I haven't really been able to podcast. Uh, and I've learned a lot about myself and how to, you know, deal with insane trauma, deal with my own trauma while helping my kids deal with theirs. And I've had to confront some ugly things about myself and, uh, and come to terms with death the experience of death, not the idea. Death, the experience of death is a bitch and it's a teacher. It's a bitch and it's a teacher. You know? You learn a lot when you come close to death. Anyway, it's been a hard time. But Norm MacDonald, whew, 
I could just pop on one of his videos. Excuse me for burping. I had some spaghetti. I'm so sorry. I could just pop on one of his videos, and I would, you know, temporarily get cheered up. You know, he's he was such a treasure, such a jewel. <laughs> oh man, um, his professor of logic joke was hilarious. And but you want to know something even funnier? Uh, I heard that joke before from my wife. My wife told me that joke <laughs> years before I heard Norm Macdonald say it. And uh, I think that um, it was just like a colloquial little folksy joke that people told out in the Midwest. I think she picked it up in Missouri when she went to college there. And that was what was so great about Norm is he had an appreciation for common people, you know? He, he wasn't derisive and hateful toward just regular people. You know, he had a real love for people. You would, whenever you watch interviews with other comedians who knew him, they'll they'll often say something like that about him. Conan O'Brien, especially, he's a real genuine person, and uh, so he he took these sweet old traditional jokes and he gave he breathed life into them and gave them some heart again. You know, and he would go on these variety shows, and then he, these clips of him became so huge and famous over the last five years. You know, he really got a. a a resurrection of his popularity because of YouTube. Um, it was just uh, funny that he took that joke. It's one of my favorite canned jokes, Professor of Logic. I'm not going to tell it here. You know, you can go Google it. Anyway, uh, I'm just really just. I'm, this episode is just me talking about me, so you know me and uh, who I am. Uh, the podcast that I had before. Uh, my dad passed was called men with chests it was a catholic podcast and i was sort of a recent convert when i started that podcast but i <clears throat> went to school in nashville and got a degree a master's degree in theology christian theology from treveca Nazarene University. So I am a qualified person when it comes to talking about Christian religion. I know a lot about it from uh, the academic level, okay? And it has been a passion of study of mine for a long time. So I know a lot about the history of Christianity and a lot about the history of the church and a lot about the Bible, how it was written, who wrote it, the cultural context of the Bible, uh, all those sorts of things. I am bully on that stuff. So, uh, while I was getting my master's degree, I read myself into the Catholic Church. I'm one of those guys, okay? So, I, I studied all kinds of apologetics and theology, and, and uh, after about six months of that, I said, okay, well, I have to either stop being a Christian or become Catholic. Uh, so, fortunately, I was blessed with a wife who followed me into the church, and we both joined together on Easter Sunday. It was a beautiful thing. And, uh, Yes, the pedophile priest scandal and crisis in the church bothers me greatly. But, you know, the actions of the priests and whatever evil they do has no bearing on what the church teaches theologically and uh, what they do sacramentally, okay? This is, uh, I think it's, I don't want to speak incorrectly i want to say neo-pelagianism is the heresy where you think that uh <clears throat> if the priest is in sin that the sacraments that he does cannot be valid okay we're i'm not a neo-pelagian okay i recognize that the sacraments can be efficacious even if the priest who does the sacrament is in sin 
Okay. Anyway, I don't want to bore you with this. I did a Catholic podcast, and I got really in traditional traditional Catholicism at the time. It was sort of like conspiracy Catholicism, Q Catholicism in a way. Uh, it's all about conspiracies in the Vatican and the mafia and Freemasons and sat- Satanism in the Vatican and all this stuff. Uh, what, what Protestants, American Protestants, don't realize is that um, a lot of the conspiracy theories they have about the Vatican and the Catholic Church being Satanists and all this stuff, um, <clears throat> that a lot of conservative Catholics agree with you and share these conspiracies with you, but the difference is they have a, a historical understanding about when this stuff came into the church, and it came in after 1920s, 1930s. That's when it really started to get into the church heavy and take over. So there was actually a, a revolution or an infiltration of the Catholic Church in the 20th century by anti-Catholic forces, Freemasons, the CIA, uh, etc., and so forth. So you, you can kind of look at the church in the 20th century as being um, very sick with uh, glowies and spooks, uh, those being colloquial terms for intelligence agents and people uh, working on behalf of a nefarious agenda. So... Anyway, uh, there's a lot of, you know, those those Catholics and Protestants who agree with those things, they could learn a lot from each other, and they could work together, I think, uh, to help make the church better, because we do not need satanic pedophiles uh, running the church. That is uh, something that we could definitely do without, you know? You know what I'm saying? So I did that for a while, and I did some really great interviews on that show, and I had a, some great co-hosts, and we talked about the Catholic news, but you know what? The traditional Catholic space online is kind of uh, tiresome. So I had to take a step back, and uh, now I'm more interested in talking about politics and all the things that I listed before. And I'll probably talk a little bit about Catholicism. You know, I'm still Catholic. I take my family to church. We're much more of a chill, low-key Catholic family now. Before I before I had kids, I was kind of a, you know, a trad firebrand, or at least I thought I should be. Um, but I, I, that's not really me anymore. I do probably, if you know, if you put a gun to my head, I would probably still say I agree with traditional Catholicism view on most things. But you know, I I think that that um, that battle, I, you know, I just I don't completely understand all the players in that battle and where they're coming from. And so I have to take a step back because I don't want to be exploited by another shyster. You know, there's shysters everywhere and you got to be wary of them. So I had to take a step back. And uh, I want to do this show now. This show allows me to be my complete self all in one place. So let's see. What else to say about me before I wrap it up? Um... You know, conspiracy theories, they are fascinating. They're amazing, actually. They're, they're a great example of human imagination and uh, the human ability to be completely batshit insane and come up with some sort of coherent way of explaining their insanity. <laughs> the sheer human ability of that is impressive to me. And, you know, uh, I... I I'm someone who believes that anything is possible, you know, and uh, I'll entertain any idea for a while. As long as the the person communicating it to me is doing it with respect, then, you know, I'm all, you know, I'll listen to you if I have the time. I, I think it's fascinating. 
So I know a lot about conspiracies. I've been interested in them for a long time. Since I was a child, as I mentioned, my dad raised me to know about conspiracy theories. And <clears throat> I've, been, I've been fascinated ever since. Uh, and I probably know about all of them, or at least have heard of them. Um, <clears throat> some of my favorite conspiracy gurus out there, I guess, would be... Uh, I was a huge fan of Tracy Twyman before she passed away. And uh, I guess at the time, people thought there were some fishy circumstances. Uh, I've heard some people claim that she was taken out by somebody from a government agency. And I've heard other people say she committed suicide. Who knows? But she was a really interesting and unique researcher in that field. Um, but her subject matters got pretty dark. So I would not recommend <laughs> looking into that stuff too, too close. Um, be careful with that. Uh, but she brought an interesting perspective. I think I probably would not agree with a lot of what she said, but I, I really respected her tenacity and her willingness to ask difficult questions. <clears throat> and then the whole Isaac Cappy thing that blew up with her uh, and the whole Tom Hanks accusations, that was wild. And that was just months before she died as well. So there was definitely, she got on somebody's bad side in that whole thing. And uh, that was before, I guess, Q and Pizzagate became mainstream, but it was kind of in that in that vein. Uh, yeah. I mean, one thing you got to say about Donald Trump is that if he had not been president, you would not have the number of people in this country who are aware of the human trafficking problem in our global elites as you do now, right? I mean, when I was first, uh, <clears throat> like when it, when I was a young adult, the deep, dark secret in the world of conspiracy was the fact that uh, the global elite are trafficking human children and use them for sexual purposes and and ritual purposes, occult ritual purposes. That was uh, and it was being done on an industrial scale. When I first found when I first heard that idea, I had to stop and just take some weeks off for my mental health because that was too I almost quit. I was like I'm just going to turn into Joe Bob watching the Tennessee Titans every weekend and drinking my brain cells to death because I don't want to live in a world where this takes place. You know, I had that kind of reaction. Uh but eventually I came back to it. <clears throat> that idea was like barely whispered about uh only in the deepest darkest corners of conspiracy town. And now half the country believes it. Just 12 years later, you know, what a huge shift. I mean, how can you sustain a society when you have, you know, 50 million people who think Tom Hanks is, well, you know what I'm saying. Uh, I don't think you can keep it together. You know, there has to be some kind of retribu retribution. It's difficult to point out specific people with this stuff because there's so many smoke and mirrors, but the, it's a fact that hundreds of thousands of kids go missing every year, uh, that children are trafficked all over the world by rich and powerful people, um, and that this is allowed to happen for blackmail purposes in the intelligence sector. It's all about maintaining power. They don't care, actually, about us. You know, They, they look at us as peasants and cattle that can be used for such horrific things. These are facts. You can't necessarily point to specific people and the specific crimes that they committed in that world because there's so much obfuscation but the larger narrative is a fact and it has to change with this many people aware of it <sighs> what a world we live in huh
What a world. What a world. So. <clears throat> Gotta give Donald Trump a little credit. Though maybe he was a, a release valve. That was the whole point of his presidency was, was the Q op. You know? The Q conspiracy op. The whole point of his presidency maybe. Because they saw that people were starting to realize the true demonic, horrific nature of the ruling class and that they had to take that energy and funnel it into something or it was going to blow up their neoliberal global order. And so they found a game show host to shuck and jive, a carnival barker to sell the sizzle while they're eating the steak. You know what I'm saying? callback to earlier themes so donald trump was hired to do the q op right say all the right things give all the right hints q does its thing on 4chan and 8chan given all these people who were learning about the pizzagate conspiracy theories reason to think that there were good guys in the u.s military who were secretly taking out all the evil pedophiles all over the world and sending them to gitmo uh, I got news for you, Jack. Listen, fat, <laughs> that ain't happening. <laughs> that is not happening. So, Donald Trump may have just been a Q-Psyop, you know? Why not? Makes a lot of sense to me. <sighs> These people are always playing games with us. It's all about control. And speaking of which, that idea first came into my head in a real, like, profound way when I read the novel Dune, right? Dune. Because I believe that Frank Herbert was giving us a peek into the mind space, the psychology of people who run things, of the ruling class. And that these people are always thinking about maintaining and expanding their power at whatever cost. Human life is not an object to that agenda, or not an obstacle to that agenda for the powerful. And <clears throat> also that they're not interested in telling the truth to the common people about what they're doing. Why would they? And that their plans are sometimes span generations, multi-generations. Uh, that is the, that those are some profound truths that you can learn from reading Dune or watching the new movie, which is fantastic. Uh, and take that and, say, oh, well, this is how people who run the world think, right? Um, <clears throat> so, where was I going with that exactly? Oh, the, the, so, the, the multi-generational conspiracies, right? The Bene Gesserit and their breeding programs that take generations and generations, that sort of thing. Uh, these are long-term conspiracies. And one other crazy idea I'll throw out there before I go. Uh, rec uh, maybe four or five years ago, I that Sola Busca Tarot was made popular by Peter Mark Adams, and he wrote this book, The Game of Saturn, and it told of the Sola Busca Tarot, which was a deck of tarot cards <clears throat> that were created as a, I believe, a wedding gift in uh, Florence or one of the cities in Italy during that time. It was the fourteen or fifteen hundreds, and it was for uh, a aristocratic family in that city 
and it was a gift. And the pictures on the cards were not your typical tarot card deck pictures. They were a whole different set. And the author deciphered the images on the cards and came to the conclusion that they were a revelation of the belief system of that ruling family and that the ruling family believed that the god of this world was the being Saturn or Kronos. And that's the god of time and order. Um, that's the god represented by the black cube, which you can see in the Kaaba and in Mecca. Um or the prayer box on the on the heads of, of Jewish prayers. Uh, the cube. Uh, <laughs> sorry. The Temple of Solomon, also a cube. There's cubes everywhere. Uh, apparently, if you unfold a cross, or if you fold up a cross, it becomes a cube as well, three-dimensional cube. Anyway, the cube is the symbol of Saturn. And that this family worshipped Saturn, and they understood that if they did certain things and made certain sacrifices to this being that they would be reincarnated into the same family. And that was their way of keeping control over the world. So perhaps these people in charge really think that they're like doing these dark rituals to reincarnate into the same family so they stay in power. Multi-generational plans, you know. That's something I learned from Dune. And I was really hoping that people who shared my love of Dune would see that truth about the ruling elite, but alas, they largely do not, I've found. Sci-fi fans are kind of cringe, to be honest, even though I am one. Anyway, <laughs> till next time. Okay, folks, thanks uh, for tuning in to the interview here. This is the interview portion of the show. This is a an interview I did with Luke Stokes way back in 2013. The topic was Bitcoin, and it was trading well below 30k, well below 3,000, probably close to 50, 50 bucks at that time. And this was right after the Mt. Gox scandal had happened, in which a Ma Magic the Gathering uh, online exchange website was holding uh, many people's Bitcoin, and it got stolen by hackers. So I hope you enjoy. This is the Samuel H. Bolton Show. Hi, folks. You're uh, listening to the Samuel H. Bolton Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. I have with me Luke Stokes. Uh, we're going to talk about Bitcoin a little bit. Luke, why don't you uh, introduce yourself to the to the folks and let them know who you are and and uh, your background, that kind of thing, what you do these days. Excellent. Yeah, uh, it's great to be here. Uh, my name is Luke Stokes. I run a company called FoxyCart. It's an e-commerce shopping cart system that I developed uh, with a business partner back in 2007. And we just basically allow uh, developers and merchants to be able to add e-commerce to their existing websites. And I got interested in Bitcoin about a year ago. And it just was just totally blew me away. Uh, it was actually February of 2013. As I started digging into it, it just fascinated me because I've been involved in the payments space and involved in uh, you know technology. It involves 
uh, cryptology and all these different things and networks, decentralized systems, things that really interest me. And the more I researched it, and at the time I'd also been learning about the central banking systems of the world and thinking, wow, this is an amazing, incredible uh, invention that has never existed before and can actually do some incredible things. So that's where the last year of my life has been uh, consumed. And, and coming in actually April of last year, I convinced my business partner to actually support Bitcoin on our platform, on the Foxcart platform uh, via BitPay as a payment gateway. So we not only accept Bitcoin as payment for our services, but we provide Bitcoin as a payment option for all the different stores that want to do e-commerce with FoxyCard. Oh, wow. So were you one of the uh, first online companies, businesses to, to accept Bitcoin? I don't know if I'd say one of the first, but definitely an early adopter. That was something that was really fun. I spent a lot of time in the BitcoinTalk.org forums and I kind of said, hey, you know, I would love to be able to do this, but I need to know that there's going to be some people interested in it before we invest, uh, you know, time and, and money and into implementing this. And the community was great. They, they promoted it quite a bit. We actually were one of the first advertisers on the Let's Talk Bitcoin podcast uh, with Adam and Andreas and Stephanie. And that oh, wow. was really cool to be a part of. Yeah, that was actually even before it was called Let's Talk Bitcoin. They were actually going to do a daily a daily podcast, <laughs> which after I think like three or four days, they were like, we have not slept at all. This is yeah. insane. But yeah, we, we did an ad there early on, which is really cool. And so we got some exposure to the, uh, the community early on. Uh, but yeah, since then we've had, you know, uh, there's a lot of different uh, larger organizations like Zenga and uh, Overstock.com and other companies that have jumped on board as well. Gotcha. Yeah, I remember when you first told me about Bitcoin about a year ago, and uh, it was like uh, probably February of last year, and you were telling me it was going to change the world. And I think at that time it was trading at like, what, $12 a coin? <laughs> yeah, I think when I got involved, it was like around, I think my first buy was about 20 bucks. It was, oh, wow. I, bought, I, I convinced my wife to let me throw away and burn in, you know, <laughs> $50 of, of money that we would both believe we would never see again. Wow. And, uh, and, and we bought, you know, two and a half Bitcoins for, you know, for 50 bucks, basically. It was kind of neat. And, and I watched it all that whole year do all its crazy stuff, go, go up to 260 and then crash down to 50 and, uh, I tried to play the day trading game and lost more money than I made for sure. And I realized that the only thing I can do somewhat well is know when the good buying opportunities are. I have no clue on the sell. I remember I even, <laughs> I even sold some around 180 thinking, oh, well, it was actually after the government took over uh, the Silk Road. They had all this Bitcoin that they confiscated, and I was—I thought, oh, for sure, they're just going to dump these on the market and crash the price. And I had no clue about how that whole process works as far as the offline auctions that they do and things like that. Right, so I right. sold, and and of course, right—you know—not too long after that, it went up to as high as twelve hundred. So that was yeah. a great financial decision. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Since then, I was just like, you know what? I, I believe in this long term. I'm too emotionally connected because I want to end the day with more Bitcoin <laughs> as a trader. <laughs> and so I just realized I'm not good at that. I'll stick to programming. <laughs> that sounds good. Yeah. So. So it's not so much about day trading. It's more about the long-term game, right? Believing in Definitely. it as a, a – go ahead. Yeah, the technology itself is what interests me. Uh, the currency is fascinating as well because of what it can do for, for freedom-loving, liberty-seeking uh, people. But And also the unbanked. There's an incredible opportunity for people, 6 billion people that don't have banking services will be right. Bitcoin to have that. But really, it's the technology. When I understand as a, as a developer, a programmer myself, when I understand what the actual technology is solving, how it's creating a network of decentralized, decentralized public ledger, a, a consensus system that uses math for security, not you don't have to trust anyone. Uh, it's just a fascinating thing. 
So can you give us like a quick, well, it doesn't have to be that quick, but like a layman's explanation of what Bitcoin is? Maybe give us an idea of when and how it started. Yeah, I'll, I'll do my best. Uh, <laughs> actually, I wrote a, a blog post recently about like how to understand Bitcoin in 30 yeah, minutes because it really takes about, notes. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, that'd be great. It, it, it kind of takes about that much time and 20 minutes of that is actually reading the original paper. And so where it started is there's a pseudonym, which we kind of all agree is not his real name. Uh, either an individual or a group of people by the name of Satoshi Nakamoto came up with this uh, idea for a digital currency and also a network for transmitting that currency. And he put it in a white paper. They call it the Bitcoin paper. You can literally go to bitcoin.org slash Bitcoin PDF and it's there. And it's about eight pages, eight or nine pages. And it just explains this whole process. And if you go into the deep kind of what it's doing, what's incredible about it is there's been ideas for digital currency in the past, but they all rely on a centralization. You know, like just like when you write a check and you send it, you know, to your friend, he's got to go take it to his bank and there's a central check clearinghouse. It has to agree that my account has that money and it's going to debit it from my account, credit it to your account. Everyone agrees and that money's not going to get double spent. Well, when you have a digital currency, you always need that centralization up until this point. So this paper outlines via uh, a proof of this 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 algorithm and also this validation process where kind of like if I hand you a physical apple it's very very clear ownership took you know change took place I had it once now you have it and it's very clear the digital thing if I give you a digital apple how do you know I didn't give someone else like a copy of it 5 minutes before you know how do you know you have the real thing and what's fascinating about the protocol the technology is it creates a system where through decentralized nodes, all these individuals that are part of the network, they can all get consensus and agree upon ownership. It's basically like an accounting ledger where every transaction is kept track of, mm -hmm. but it's distributed and decentralized. So every single member of the network has a copy of the ledger. And every time a new group of transactions get confirmed and added to the ledger, everyone agrees. So the money can only be spent once. You can never have a double spend on the currency. And that was really the breakthrough. There's been a lot of attempts at digital currencies in the past, but they all required some kind of centralization in order to prevent a double spend of a digital idea. Gotcha. Okay, so the thing that made it different was this kind of this open and public ledger that everyone had access to, and everybody could kind of keep each other accountable. Mm -hmm. And and the process too. Another big part of it was, like I'm sure you know, our our currency that we use today, fiat currency, it, it can be inflated uh, at the whim of any Federal Reserve or government agency. They can print as much as they want. Well, the protocol was designed to only have 21 million bitcoins ever created. Uh -huh. There will never be more than that. And That's currently, I think there's around 12 million right now. I got you. And so that, that protects against inflation and things like that? Uh-huh. And, and also just manipulation, too. It's because it's a known curve. Everyone knows exactly how the currency is created, and I'll get into that in just a second. So it's there's no kind of shady business going on. There's no kind of – everything's public. Everything's out there in the open. And each Bitcoin, each single Bitcoin can be – divided into over 100 million divisions. They're called Satoshis. So even if I wanted to buy like a stick of gum and the price of a Bitcoin was, say, $10,000, it wouldn't be a problem because you can have tiny, tiny subdivisions of a Bitcoin. You can do microtransactions for fractions of a penny uh, for free anywhere in the world to anyone. Wow. It's, it's really fascinating. So the, the idea of just keeping it completely open and completely decentralized uh, – is just super powerful. And the way that they control how currency is added to the network and added to the system, as I mentioned, that blockchain, that, that's what that's called, the public ledger. That public ledger, new transactions get added to that as a block. 
And the way it works, all these different nodes, they're called miners, are on the network, and they're running through this very complicated algorithm, taking the entire blockchain that is already, everyone agrees, has already happened, and then the new transactions, which are unconfirmed, they run it through this process, and they actually have these machines that are just doing this over and over and over again. And they're trying to come up with a very specific answer to uh, basically a math program, uh, a pro- problem. And it's very complicated. It's very difficult to do. And the protocol is designed in such a way that somewhere, somewhere in the world, somebody about every 10 minutes is going to solve the problem. And they're going to have the correct answer that the protocol accepts for adding a new block of transactions as verified transactions on the blockchain. And as a reward for that, they get uh, the block reward, which is currently 25 bitcoins. It used to be 50 bitcoins. Every wow. four years, it halves. So you can you can see how it just halves and halves and halves every four years. So I think it's the year 2140 is when the last Bitcoins will actually be distributed through a block reward. And on top of just the reward, there's also transaction fees. So if you want to speed up your transaction being sent to someone else, you can add a little transaction fee to it, and that goes to the miners as well. Gotcha. But that, that process now is so difficult because there's so many... Millions and millions of uh, you know people working on this problem. The transaction distributed all over the world. That you have to join a pool of miners, and you you don't get the whole blockchain reward yourself. You get rewarded via a, a mining pool kind of percentage of how much effort you contributed to finding that next block. And so it's it's a pretty incredible process. The the mining process itself is is definitely the most complicated aspect of Bitcoin and the hardest one to grasp. It's taken me a long time to kind of figure it out. But as you as you dive into a little bit how it works, it's really kind of thinking about it in terms of money spent to secure the PayPal network. It's a similar way. The money spent on mining machines and people doing mining is a way to secure the blockchain network and to secure the new transactions so that everyone can agree on, uh, on which, which transactions have taken place. Okay. Gotcha. Well, I can see that Bitcoin uh, has a lot of potential in that it is very secure and encrypted, at least from what I can understand. But it's, it is, like you said, difficult to comprehend, especially when you don't have a background in uh, software engineering and currency and all that kind of stuff. So that's why I implore uh, anyone who's listening to do your own education and research on this topic as well after you listen to this. Um, but let's go on. There is some concern I've, I've seen in the conspiracy community and in the liberty community that this is really just a big facade for the New World Order or whoever to roll out a one-world digital currency. It's been their dream for decades, and and this is it, and we're all just uh, dupes, and we don't realize it. Uh, do you have any thoughts about that? <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, I've definitely done some soul-searching there, too. I, I've looked into that, and it uh, it it's one of those things where in the early beginnings of the Internet, the Internet was this, you know, free thing that was started by, you know, some government funded organizations, but really was this idea of we're going to make information available for free for everyone. And then, and that I think was true to an extent. And now we're kind of looking at it later going, oh, wow, it's also like a pretty powerful tool for people to spy on us. So there may be some aspects of that that's true with Bitcoin. Like I said, it's public. Every single transaction is visible to everyone on the network, but it's from one address, one string of random numbers to another address, another string of random numbers. So they're not identities directly tied to these addresses, but through different analysis techniques, there are ways to kind of uh, assume what's going on. I mean, you, if you know enough about metadata analysis, you can kind of imply some pretty incredible things. So there is some concern there. Me personally, the reason I'm not as concerned is I feel that if there is a system like that, it's going to be a system that they want to control. 
And that's what's fascinating about Bitcoin. Just like any peer-to-peer network, if you looked at like Napster or the Tor network or any of this, they're very difficult to control. Tor, Tor network might be a bad example because it, it's got some weaknesses if you own about 10% of the network. But from my understanding of the way the Bitcoin protocol is designed, you'd have to have more than 50% of the network in order to influence it negatively. There's actually a, a thing called the Byzantine Generals problem. It's a problem in computer science that was very difficult to solve prior to Bitcoin. And that's one of the things it solved where you've got all these actors in the network that you can't trust. But if you can trust 51% of them, then you can trust the whole process. It's pretty fascinating. And another aspect of Bitcoin that I think is really important is that it's open source technology. That is something that uh, a developer like myself who deals with open source technologies all the time really appreciates. Other people may not really understand how much how valuable that is but much of the internet for example runs on apache which is a web server that's open source there's a lot of open source technology that we use in our daily lives and it's very very secure and robust and effective because anyone anywhere in the world has the ability to look at the source code with a fine-toothed comb and every time there's been a bug or security vulnerability or any concern it's been noticed and patched very very quickly Whereas closed source software is software that one company, one centralized organization controls and no one can look in there and say, hey, what's up with this little line of code that, you know, feeds data to the NSA? We don't really like that line of code. That's a problem. You know, we won't know that that's happening. But with Bitcoin, everything is there. The protocol is completely open. Uh, All the different implementations of the protocol, the different wallet software, most of them are open source as well. And so you can actually kind of look in there and say, okay, unless the actual cryptography itself has been compromised, uh, we're pretty secure there. But even then, which is kind of nice, let's say there was a problem with one of the multiple methods of cryptography that are used. Well, you can actually fork the blockchain, create a new uh, basically version of the protocol and move forward because of the open source nature of the technology. You get enough people in the network to agree to that and you can move forward. So it's it's pretty incredible. That Yeah. Certainly incredible. A lot of it is very over my head, I will admit, but uh, I'm sure this information is extremely useful for many folks. <laughs> and uh, I'm learning more and more as I go. So uh, hopefully I can understand half of what you're saying in a couple months. Uh, but it's, it is cool. extremely well, definitely, fascinating. Definitely stop me. I'd say <laughs> no, no, no. no. It's not a criticism. That's too complicated. Cause I, I, oh, I know, but I, I need to work on simplifying it because I think it's like it's easy when you've been involved in something. Like I built my first website in 1996. You know, yeah. It's very easy to just not realize some of the things, how complicated they are when you've been exposed to them for you know 10 20 years whatever it is so if i say something complicated let me know and say can you say that again simpler <laughs> no, I, <laughs> I think a good summary is that bitcoin's strength is, is the fact that it's open source and and many uh, all the all the people who are using bitcoin can sort of have a, a a say in how it's controlled and it's not all controlled behind closed doors in a centralized way like uh, the current currency systems right so people who are concerned about Excellent. the yeah. new world order coming in or whoever this, these centralized power structures coming in and using Bitcoin, uh, it's actually, uh, there's less of a chance of them doing that with Bitcoin than with the current uh, paper currency systems we use. Would you say that that's a good Oh, summary? absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and to be clear, I do think they will copy Bitcoin in the future. Many people talk about Bitcoin being the very first, and there are hundreds and hundreds of other what they call altcoins, yeah. which are kind of versions of the Bitcoin concept that have been spun off with slightly modified properties. So I do think in the future, Governments will not be able to stop this. It's not a technology that can be uninvented. So I think in the future, their governments will probably try to release their own coins and their own, you know, digital cryptocurrency type concepts. And it'll just be a matter of uh, whether they are able to crack down on this one or not. But I think this one is one that can't be controlled due to the nature of peer to peer networks. 
that it kind of, it gives me a lot of hope for it. I mean, there's, there's basically some concepts that you have to, that the more you understand, the better you understand Bitcoin. One is peer to peer networks. One is open source technology and one is cryptography. Okay. Yeah. The more you understand of those three, the more confidence you can have in, in the system. Well, I've got my eye. I think the true Illuminati cryptocurrency is Dogecoin, personally. Uh, <laughs> I mean, because, it, you know, it slides in there with the cute little dog and everybody buys it and then they've got you. That's what I think. But that's just that's just wild conjecture. So nobody take that to the bank. OK, well, let's talk a little bit about the big uh, scandal controversy that's been happening the last week with uh, the Mt. Gox exchange. I know that's uh, not the hottest topic or the mo- what well, is the hottest topic, but the nicest topic to talk about. Uh, Mt. Gox, correct me if I'm wrong, was founded as a Magic the Gathering online exchange. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's from what I understand, they purchased the website with that in mind. Never actually launched uh, as an exchange for those cards, but that was the original intent. And it's one of those things where it's the first exchange I used last year. It's the first one I got involved with. But the more I started hearing from the community about how that organization is run and the times that I saw, like when it went from 260 all the way down to 50, a big part of that was major issues with the Mt. Gox exchange. At the time, they were doing about 80% of the transaction volume, and their system was just not capable, yeah. and their tech support was not helpful. And the, many people were making claims that they were incompetent for what they were what they were doing, the responsibilities they had to the community. And so there have been many, many months of um, allegations and frustrations with that company the term, oh, we were goxed, yeah, you'll hear that often where, you know, basically Mt. Gox made a mistake and that everyone is losing value in their Bitcoin because of a problem with their system. And as as, uh, as time got on and things got even more and more shady, at one point, the government even shut down their their interaction with the Dwala, like Dwala canceled their interaction with Mt. Gox. The government shut down the U.S. subsidiary they had for transmitting money from the U.S. to Mt. Gox and that was because they didn't actually file the proper paperwork for being a money transmitter. So they were breaking the law in a sense, and they had millions of dollars on Douala and millions of dollars in that bank account, all of it confiscated by the government. And it was just one of those things. Once that happened, I, I definitely was out, and I was telling everybody, don't use that exchange. They're yeah. not competent enough to follow the rules. They're going to get shut down. And, uh, and it, it was just unfortunate to see how long it took and how many people were still unfortunately using it as an exchange by the time it shut down. Well, lesson learned. I mean, it's probably going to be a good thing in the long run for the Bitcoin community. They can uh, learn from the mistakes Mt. Gox made and kind of build a stronger system and a stronger community. Uh, And a a lesson about centralization of control as well. (laughs) You know? Yeah, exactly. I've been tweeting a lot about how whenever you take a decentralized network and start to centralize aspects of it, it's like a cancer. I mean, it's just going to get, it's going to get eaten alive. I mean, the decentralized systems do not want to be centralized. And with this in particular, as of the time we're recording this, it's still very unclear where the 800,000 or so Bitcoin are. There's about 100,000 that supposedly they owned and the rest were actual customer coins plus a bunch of, uh, they just, it's going to be a very interesting time to see what happens and what actually comes out of this. Some people are saying it was an inside job. Some people are saying it was a hack that happened back in 2011 and they're just now discovering. Some people think they've been hiding it the whole time and using a really creative fractional reserve processes to uh, kind of stay afloat because they only need a tiny percentage of their daily uh, Bitcoin deposits in order to function as a company. So there's all kinds of allegations going on right now. Um, I can send you some links to kind of the latest so you can put those in the show notes. Yeah, sure. But it's uh, it's fascinating. And it's one of those things that, uh, like you said, people are learning from and 
actually just here in Nashville, we had the Nashville Bitcoin meetup uh, just last week, and I spoke on paper wallets, which is a concept where you take your Bitcoin, create a brand new address, and you take that private key and you print it out on a piece of paper and literally put it in a safe. Now, is that also known as uh, cold storage? Exactly. Cold storage, offline wallets, anything that's not connected to the internet or to any digital device or computer that could be hacked is part of that process. So I spoke on that and uh, John, who's kind of the co-organizer of the group, he spoke on never storing your money on an exchange. The timing of that was just, you know, perfect because right after that is when Mt. Gox shut down and it's kind of a big exclamation point on what we were saying. But it is one of those things that's going to, it's going to, I think, give pause to a lot of people as far as putting money on an exchange even to purchase Bitcoin. And especially for those who store their money there in order to do day trading, uh, it's it's a major concern. You know, when you centralize your money there, if you don't actually possess the private key yourself, you don't own the coin. Someone else does. Yeah. And you're trusting them to use it, you know, in your best interest. Hmm. It's a shame that so many people still decided to use them. It's, I heard folks say that months and months before, like you said, Mt. Gox uh, failed, there were uh, other analysts and Bitcoin advocates just warning folks left and right all over the place. And uh, of course, the media is latching yeah, onto it and and trying to make it into this oh, big yeah. thing and saying that Bitcoin has failed and you know, it's 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 yeah. Totally I want to I want to give a I want to give a shout out actually to a reporter we have in town, Jamie uh, Mickey. She's at the Tennessee and and she interviewed me about this as well. And I I just told her what my thoughts on it, saying yeah, we, we kind of all knew. And this is this is a separate thing from the Bitcoin network. There's exchanges, which are kind of the outside of the network, where people exchange with the rest of the world as far as fiat currency. But the network itself is completely secure. And she did a great job uh, doing a write up that on that in the Tennessee. And and it's it's just, there's a lot of fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Media is all over this. And the funny thing, and I mentioned that in the article, I've heard Bitcoin is dead reported on numerous numerous times i mean right. in the past year it's almost hilarious whenever whenever somebody says oh bitcoin is dead or bitcoin's crashing and friends and relatives saying oh, oh so so are you out of this bitcoin thing now i heard it's crashed i heard it got hacked i heard this that, and the other and what's really interesting about this time in particular my friends aren't saying that they're actually saying hey with the price down should i buy can i buy hey where can right. i go buy and so she's really been like they're, they're seeing through the smoke screen going no 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 you guys have been saying this as the mass media for years and those have been paying attention and been seeing it month after month after month saying okay bitcoin it's a ponzi scheme it's this that and the other it's it's not going to be here to last and now they're going you know what i don't believe you anymore <laughs> exactly well, yeah, it seems to me that Bitcoin is one of those rare, innovative technologies that has a, really the potential to change the world, and I'm sure you would agree with that. And I would say that that's its true value from what I can see is its potential, not necessarily it's what it's worth in dollars right now or any anything like that, but the potential it has to impact how society runs all over the planet. Absolutely. I've got I've got a YouTube video I put together for a presentation I did for Barcamp Nashville, which is just like why I think Bitcoin could be actually more disruptive than the internet. And a lot of people say, Oh, you can't say that because you know Bitcoin uses the internet. Well, the internet uses electricity and it uses, you know, transistors and it was like everything builds on the thing before it. But I do think because it has and I don't want to get too much into the political side of things, but really, you know, governments have a, a monopoly on force and, and currency control. I mean, that's what they do. They create currencies for their for their own citizens. And this is the first time really in history, other than pure barter, which is completely impractical, where individuals can store and control their own value. You know, I work all day to gain value for my family and myself. And most people, they don't understand what money is. They don't actually question, well, what is money and, and what does it mean? And and 
they don't understand the trust they're putting into that government currency that is manipulated and controlled. And history shows that often it's done not in our own best interests. So it is a, is an incredibly disruptive technology from that standpoint, from the geopolitical standpoint of individuals being able to have a say on how their store of value is uh, used and controlled. And also uh, just telling them, asking, getting them to ask the question of what money is. Because once you start asking the question of what money is, uh, it's it's fascinating. So I'll I'll send you a link to that as well if you want to put that in the show notes. I think it's a fun backdrop on that to see historically how different people have viewed money and the different quotes I have in there are are pretty interesting. Yeah, definitely. That that sounds great. So uh, I, what is this going to do for the third world economies if this truly catches on? You know, it, like you think about a country like uh, Kenya where they skipped over the landline telephones that we all have here and they went straight to cell phones because they work better. Right, so that's sort of happening over there as well. They're skipping over the the sort of buildup that we had with paper currency and central banking, and they're going right to uh, something like, or they they could go right to something like Bitcoin. Uh, what- Absolutely, yeah, I'm I'm so excited about that. Actually, if you listen to one of the best uh, speakers and advocates for Bitcoin out in there out there right now is is Andreas Antonopoulos, and he's part of the Let's Talk Bitcoin podcast along with along with uh, Adam Levine and. <laughs> just a second. If you want to, <laughs> my daughter want to pause for a second. I want to. All right, just a second. One. Yeah, that's fine. All right. Sorry about that. That's good. I, I know that so our much. interview is roughly the length of a kids' program, so that's that's a good. Uh, yeah, really. I was thinking about that too, and like, oh yeah, 27, 27 minutes. Yeah, not bad. Okay. So, so I was saying, uh, Andres Antonopoulos and Adam Levine, part of the Let's Talk Bitcoin. The way they talk about it is the other six and a half billion. They talk about the unbanked, those who, as you said, aren't part of the existing infrastructures of centralized finances that we have today. They're they're completely unbanked. They have no way to have access to any kind of microloan system or any kind of uh, way to do any of the financial instruments that we use today because they don't right. have access to banking. This would provide them through the cell phone network, like you said, and, and smartphones, access to, again, control their own store of value. And you're, you're, we're seeing this already with systems like M-Pesa and other different uh, payment networks that are out there. But those are still centralized, still controlled, huge fees. I mean, 20 30% fees, it's insane. Yeah. Uh, another big aspect for that market is the remittance market. There's a lot of people that are in one nation working very hard to make money, and then they send that money back to their friends, relatives, and family that are that are uh, in a, a more impoverished nation. And again, those fees sometimes are outrageous. And the people who need money the most are being charged the most to get that that value sent to them. So that would be really another thing for if you look at Western Union or MoneyGram or some of these other companies, they're going to be hugely disrupted, I think, to the extent that Blockbuster Video was when Netflix came around. Right. You know, when there's a, a need that's not being served efficiently, uh, it's, it's going to be really difficult to maintain their their control over that industry when right. Bitcoin comes around. So really, this is the, the market in action, right? This is uh, empowering people to take control of their own finances in the face of huge governments and huge corporations as well, like Western Union. Uh, I, yes. I, saw- I mean, it, it, it's fascinating, too, when you think about – we were talking about the Mt. Gox situation. Some of the people that lost the most money even – I watched an interview recently. Uh, I forgot if it was Eric or, or Roger, but one of the major Bitcoin uh, – advocates he basically said yeah you know i took a risk i knew uh mount gox wasn't the best place to have my money and i lost my money and what's they're celebrating it as 
and the free market in action, as opposed to Mt. Gox was too big to fail and right. we all need to keep it afloat. They said, no, they were not providing a good service. They were not, uh, they may have even broken the law depending on how things shake out. You know, we needed them to go away and make room for more advanced, more professional actors in the system. Right. So um, it, it was very refreshing to hear some of these people who had significant losses. They weren't screaming for regulation. They weren't asking the government to come and bail them out. They were actually saying, no, we understood what we were doing. We understood the risks. We took those risks and we lost and we're going to be better for it. Do not, you know, regulation is not the answer here. And I thought that was really amazing. Yeah, that is quite incredible. So if, if let's say uh, Bitcoin becomes more and more prevalent, more and more common, people start using it in general, like let's assume there's not some kind of crazy government crackdown. What does that look like for someone's day-to-day life? How does that change the way that, that they use money? Uh, they're not going to the bank well, anymore. I think, Go ahead. Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh. It's funny. You just start <laughs> using Bitcoin for a little while, and every single time you have to interact with your bank, you're like, what the? This is archaic. <laughs> like, right, just, right. It just feels so weird. I'm signing my name on a check, and I'm putting it in an envelope, and I'm waiting three to five days. And it just it, anytime I transfer money from one bank account to another, anytime we, we have a distributed team all over the world, so when we pay them via FoxyCart, and we, we have to wait for those transactions to clear. And it's it's just insane as far as having to go through the banking systems rules and regulations it, it feels normal now because it's what we've already seen but again i've i've used bitcoin to buy a tv online i used it recently to to stay at a hotel oh wow uh, i mean i've used it enough to say like oh my gosh this is amazing but another big part of it too is the credit card companies they take two to three percent on every single transaction now that's a cost to the merchant they're passing that right along to you that, sure. that is a, that is a cost that so it's going to bring prices gonna, down yeah it could it could bring prices down. It could create um, a lot of opportunities, a lot of interesting ways of, of just thinking about things differently as far as businesses go. You know, you can have a business, for example, let's say their their operating margins are three percent. Well, they they start using Bitcoin, they just double their profit, double their profit. Yeah, that's a, incredible to me to think that that's possible. And so I think from a day to day life, like uh, like I just today actually I went to lunch and I forgot my wallet. And and I was having lunch with John, and and I was like, oh, he's like, oh, I'll get you, I'll pay for it. And I was like, well, hey, I got my phone, I can I can actually send you some, you know, I can send you Bitcoin right now. But he's a Bitcoin enthusiast also, and he's like, no, no, I understand, no way, the the, the price is down. I I, know, I don't want to make you do that. <laughs> so he was gracious enough to let me uh, keep my Bitcoin. But it's it's one of those things that. Um, that is quite interesting as far as in the day-to-day interactions. It's so simple. You know, you go to a restaurant, you split the check, you literally, you know, a couple of QR codes are on the table and everyone pays exactly the amount they want to pay. It's, it's pretty seamless and fascinating. Yeah. Well, it seems like, uh, it seems like it would be very difficult to stop the progress of Bitcoin. It seems like this is something that's truly going to revolutionize things, at least to me and the research I've done the last couple of days, uh, people can poo poo it all they want, but I don't think it's going anywhere. Oh, absolutely. Like I said, it can't be uninvented. It's one of those things that you, you can't uninvent the internet. You can't uninvent peer-to-peer right. technology. You uh, can't uninvent cryptography. And you mentioned, you know, if the governments have a major crackdown, you know, Russia, for example, it's illegal in Russia. China has cracked down on it pretty hard as well. I think Taiwan just recently said Vietnam, it's illegal there as well. So, yeah, or Vietnam, yeah. So it's it's very, very interesting to see where it's going to go. And it's one of those things that there are enough people that believe in it that um, it's going to be – it could potentially be a power struggle, a showdown in terms of those who want freedom and liberty and those who want to control. And I, I, I haven't made a personal decision yet where I would go if that came to a, a head, mm-hmm. but it is one that I'd be thinking seriously about. 
because it kind of brings everything to the forefront to say, okay, what right does this organization or that government have to control my personal store of value to that extent? Right. It's an incredible time to be alive, isn't it? What was the name of the uh, the fellow with the Greek name who you mentioned, Adrian Antonopoulos? Is that uh, right? And- Andreas, Andreas Antonopoulos. Andreas uh, Antonopoulos. Spoken, yeah, he's spoken on the Kaiser Report, the Joe Rogan Experience. So he was actually just did an interview with Stefan Monolith. Yeah, I watched, I watched that the other one. day, which was great. And uh, he's just a great advocate for the community. I mean, he really. Uh, he's got a huge background in cryptography and security and encryption, and he uh, he's just a tireless uh, <laughs> promoter for the for the uh, the currency, and also he really knows what he's talking about from a technical perspective. Yeah, he mentioned in that interview that something like forty percent, maybe Stefan mentioned it, something like forty percent of uh, of economic activity in the world takes place off the books in the black market, and I'm sure a lot of that is crime, <laughs> but I'm sh- I'm sure a lot of it is also just people trying to bypass government regulations, people who can't afford to pay fees and things like that. So it seems to me that, uh, that while Bitcoin has received accusations of being something that is for the privileged class, but it's actually the other way around. Uh, it- yeah, well, that's that's definitely the most exciting thing about it, I think, as far as potential. Like you look in Venezuela and they're losing 20% in hyperinflation every year. You know, they're just trying to survive. And something like Bitcoin would allow them to do that without the capital controls that are going on. Italy just had a thing recently where 20% of a transaction into Italy would be immediately taken off the top. And you'd have to prove that you're not a money transmitter in order to get that money. Oh, wow. I, I mean, just incredible things that governments are doing. That eventually people are going to say, no, I'm working too hard for this money. I'm trying to provide for my family. There is no justifiable reason why you should be stealing this from me. You know, And when it, when it, when it comes down to how much money is used for uh, illegal uh, activities, one, one at the New York – when the New York uh, hearings they had for bit licensing in New York City, one of the people there said you know, it was about 0.1% of all transactions were used in Silk Road for illegal activity. I mean it was just a tiny fraction Jeez. of the blockchain network. And, and Silk Road, when you look for at, the listeners, was a website yes. where you could purchase uh, illegal narcotics primarily using Bitcoin and other things. Is that correct? Yes. And actually I was just listening to an article about that uh, – a podcast from Let's Stop Bitcoin is they actually had a lot of uh, products, not just illegal products, but that okay. was obviously the main draw. <laughs> and it was named and, after and, the Silk Road, right? Yes, yeah. <laughs> and it was uh, the guy who ran that went by the pseudonym of uh, a Dread Pirate Roberts. And <laughs> it was it was very uh, very interesting, very colored. You know, when that went down, it was a big deal, and everyone claimed, oh, see, Bitcoin's going to crash completely because you only people are only using it for, for illegal activities. And it, the price went up after that because it really wasn't that big of the network. And what's interesting is when you look at how much of U.S. dollars, the actual physical U.S. dollars are used for illegal drug trafficking and things, oh, it's, yeah. it's quite shocking. Another and, aspect of it that I think is fascinating is the latest number I heard was 7% of the money in the system that we use is actually physical for U.S. Dollar transactions. The rest of that is digital. It's done oh. via wire transfer, bank account to bank account. Only seven percent is actually physical. So wow. I laugh when I when people talk about this quote unquote digital currency that is Bitcoin. It's actually more physical than the currencies <laughs> we use because most of it is stored in off offline cold wallets and physical yeah. paper wallets and things like that. So it's it's really really hilarious. Yeah, and they mentioned the potential for crime with Bitcoin and they they for, they leave out the fact that the owner of the US dollar is one of the, you know, biggest purveyors of crime in the world today, right? Shh, we're not supposed to talk about that. We're gonna sh- oh, you know, I apologize. <laughs> no, it's true though. It's true. Yeah. So 
Well, that's uh, quite quite amazing. All that stuff, the implications. I, I'm I'm blown away by it. I've done the. I've enjoyed reading your blog posts and and learning from you and from other folks as well. Um, for people who are interested and want to maybe acquire some Bitcoin, can you recommend some places they can go? Yeah, and I do this uh, carefully because I, I've used a bunch of exchanges that no longer exist now. <laughs> One of them, you know, being Mt. Gox and Bitfor and others. But I uh, so far recently, and and you can give the date of this, uh, of course, when it publishes. Yeah. But I've been using Coinbase, and I've been very happy with them. Uh, they they seem to be run by a very professional group of organizations, uh, a group of investors, and they you know you connect that directly to your bank account, which some people are a little bit concerned about. I, I as after looking into the company and using them myself, I, I don't have concerns with that, and so I've I've gone ahead and most of my. Purchasing and selling of Bitcoin uh, lately has been through Coinbase, Coinbase uh, and again, they're 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 good, reputable companies. Some of the exchanges, there are many others, are very shady. You know, you, you go to the website and you're like, "Whoa, I'm gonna send money to this," you know, yeah, so, like ads for I, Russian I would, wives and things like that yeah, in the sidebar. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So it's one of those, you know, buyer beware is is never more true than than when it comes to Bitcoin. And and the advice I give everybody is don't put any money in it. You're not willing to lose because it is an experiment. Even the people who are in the Bitcoin Foundation, the main core developers, they still consider this uh, an experiment. Uh, however, it's one that I think is worth knowing about. It's kind of yeah. like if someone was to come by and tell you about the internet in 1992 and say, hey, this is going to be big. And not only that, you have the opportunity to invest in the infrastructure. That's kind of what you're doing when you're buying Bitcoin. You're investing in the potential of this infrastructure, this network, and the currency that is used on the network into the future. Wow. Well, thank you for that. And uh, am, am I uh, mistaken in saying some people will buy and sell Bitcoin just uh, with people in their local communities? How does that work? Oh, definitely. There's there's a website localbitcoins.com, and you you can using your uh, you know your phone with your wallet software, you can just go up and, uh, and just the other day when we had a little local meetup at a restaurant around town, I've got a picture of it that I tweeted out. You know, guys were doing right there, handing over cash. And send in the Bitcoin directly. Wow. It's a peer-to-peer system, so it's just there was no centralized authority at all in that transaction. It literally went from one person to the other person through the blockchain that's completely decentralized around the world. And uh, it's just a, it's fascinating to see. Once you see it, you're like, wow, that was amazing. <laughs> yeah. Can you can now can you store Bitcoin on your own hard drive? Rather Absolutely. Than an yeah. Okay. Yeah, definitely, definitely. That, and that's how you should store it, either on your own hard drive, but more, even better than that, on a paper wallet. But yeah, oh, you can, right. like you can download the Bitcoin QT, which is the client software. You can run that on your, your Linux box or your PC or your Mac, and you can that is how you create addresses. You can send Bitcoin to those addresses, and they will literally be the private key, which is what gives, ac- gives you access to that store of value, will be stored on your computer. And if that hard drive fails and you don't have a backup that's encrypted uh you'll lose it like real cash it's digital money it'll it'll be gone wow okay well uh amazing stuff luke thank you so much for uh, for being on my inaugural edition of the samuel h bolton show it was it was wonderful do you have any parting comments you'd like to make Oh man, I'm I'm just super privileged to be a part of the the, the show, and I'm super excited about. It. I think we'll look back at this and and have a good laugh uh, as we see yeah. your popularity grow and your and your user base grow. I think uh, Sam, I think you've just got some amazing content coming forward, and I'm really excited to, as a listener to be to be a part of it as well. But I'd love to come back to you in the future to kind of share how things are going because I do think this is going to be a story that's going to play out for for many years to come. Yeah, and definitely. again, it's one of those things. If you have a question, if anybody has a question, I, I'd be happy to uh 
to help out. And as just as we're doing here in Nashville, starting the Nashville Bitcoin meetup, there are other cities around the country and the world that are doing some pretty large meetups. So I would say go to meetup.com or go to some of these other meetup groups and find some people in your area. Go on Facebook even. There's some groups on Facebook. And uh, start asking some questions or go into IRC and go into the Bitcoin channel there. And there's uh, there's plenty of people out there, plenty of uh, stuff you can learn online about this that's just it's just mind-blowing. Yeah, definitely. Well, thanks again, Luke, and uh, I hope you have a great rest of the day. Talk to you later, man. All right, take care.